to sing that hymn without thinking about the time where I was one of those kings in a play, and I was in elementary school, and I knew the other people who had fake beards on had gotten some kind of adhesive to keep it on their face, but I didn't. So all I had was the little sticky part in the back of the mustache. And they must have been singing that song or talking about that. I don't think I was talking, but my mustache just fell off and floated down to the floor. I was looking at that hymn. It's such a, a great gospel hymn. Seems like why uh, that hymn has endured. Certainly the gifts that are brought to him give testimony to who he is. Uh, King forever ceasing, never over us all to reign. And then incense, which of course was used in the tabernacle, calling for worship. And then myrrh, which was used in the grave clothes of someone who had passed uh, testimony eventually to his death on the cross, but of course the, the resurrection as well. Glorious now, behold him arise. King and God and sacrifice. And uh, of course the testimony of the star as well, which God planned to guide those Gentiles as a harbinger, a, a sign of what would be to come. We call them kings. We don't know they were kings, but magi. But, of course, the Psalms testify, Isaiah testifies that kings would worship this king. He is a king of kings and a lord of lords. I hope that our meditations on uh, the Christmas songs won't go away, even if we don't sing them for some time. Maybe you play Christmas music all year. I don't know. Uh, I know some people are very strict about it. You can't play it before Thanksgiving. They can't play it too far after the new year, but uh, praise the Lord for Christmas and Christ and, of course, who he is. I wanted to just uh, mention something that I uh, want to make available to you. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the Bible reading plan. It looks like this. It's uh, got all uh, 12 months of the year organized in 25 days a month of reading. And it'll get you through the entire Bible in the year, 25 days a month. So it gives a little bit of room if for some reason you miss a day or two. And then it also gives a little box next to each uh, passage that's read. And some of the passages are shorter than a chapter. Some of them are whole chapters. Um, the first month, for instance, has <clears throat> Matthew uh, 1 through 10 and... Uh, you continue to read through Matthew um, all the way into March, but then you read the book of Acts, but also it's at somewhat of a slow pace, so that's two months. And then the Psalms, and some of those, of course, are shorter, and then some chapters in Genesis and Exodus. Um, so as you just go through the month and you read a chapter or a portion, you check it off and you're able to see progress that way. I like to use it for that reason because it helps me to see the progress. 
uh, what I'm reading. And of course, the, the purpose is to track through the course of a year. So I don't know if you've ever made it a goal to read through the Bible. Uh, to read through the Bible in a year is uh, challenging, but as you think about uh, the number of pages in the Bible and even just how many pages you'd have to read to read through it in a year, uh, it's manageable, it's doable. We'll even read some in church. So while you're here, you can check that off if you're reading together, if that helps you. But uh, there are a good number of copies out in the lobby. So when you go today, see that little green card there. Please take one if, you're, if it would help you. Uh, certainly there are other plans that uh, people have published, and I know there are certain things that can be on your computer or your phone or whatever, so there's lots of different ways to help us be in the Word of God, read the Word of God. just want to encourage you uh, to think in terms of what, what you can think over the last year and say, what did I read? And maybe you made it through the Bible. But if you never have, just want to encourage you to, to make it a goal to at least read uh, some of the Bible regularly, daily, through this year. I know you'll see the progress and the growth in your life as you seek the Lord through reading His Word. Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 9 in your Bible. Acts chapter 9, we're going to begin reading right in verse 18, and our passage is linked today to what happens as Saul is converted. But this is as Ananias has come in and told him that he was going to regain his sight. Verse 18, it says, Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. Verse 23, When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him, and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up 
going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. Paul had been born in Tarsus. At some point he had come to Jerusalem. In this chapter, we see him going from Jerusalem to Damascus. And then back from Damascus to Jerusalem. What sent him to Damascus in the first place? Well, look at verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This was, you might say, law enforcement. He was going to stamp out what he believed to be heretical, false teaching. But of course, we know what took place on the road. The Lord met him. So with that full fury and anger against the disciples of the Lord, he went. But the Lord met him on the road, and someone said, Christ, like a skillful physician, healed him when his fever was at his worst. And he certainly would have done harm to those disciples, including Ananias, who's mentioned in this chapter. He would have done harm to those at Damascus. But Christ, Christ stopped him. Uh, Christ took away his sight. Christ humbled him. And Christ brought him to faith. And in bringing him to faith, of course, Saul, like anyone else, was forgiven for his sins. All of his sins. Ananias had received the vision that Saul was praying. He came even after objecting, but the Lord gave Ananias instruction and helped him to see what he was doing, what the Lord was doing in Saul's life. And so, Ananias comes and lays his hands on Saul, and suddenly he can see. Something fell from his eyes, it says in verse 18, like scales. And he regained his sight. Someone said those scales on his eyes, whatever was on his eyes, was emblematic of his receiving, for a time, blindness like he had spiritual blindness. And then when he came to spiritual sight, then his physical eyes were opened as well. And what did he see when he got to open his eyes? He saw a friend. This man, Ananias, certainly a man of faith. Paul remembered him, spoke of him when he gave his testimony. I love what one author said in his life of the Apostle Paul, his name is James Stalker. Speaking of Ananias, he said, nothing could be more beautiful than the way in which this servant of God approached the man who had come to the city to take his life. As soon as he learned the state of the case, he forgave and forgot all the crimes of his enemy and sprang to clasp him in the arms of Christian love. 
certain as may have been the assurance which in the inner world of the mind Paul in those three days received of forgiveness, it must have been to him a most welcome reassurance when on opening his eyes again upon the external world, he was met with no contradictions of the visions he had been looking on. But the first object he saw was a human face bending over him with looks of forgiveness and perfect love. What a testimony Ananias must have been to him to not only forgive him, welcome him, but then to bring him to the other disciples. We briefly considered that at the end of verse 19, after he is baptized because he's come to faith in Christ, he takes some food because he hadn't been eaten for several days. And then Luke records at the end of verse 19, now for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. Now, what did he come to Damascus to do? He came to arrest those people to bind them, to take them back to Jerusalem. But following Christ's saving him, now he associates with them. It's really an amazing transformation. And what we see in the following verses are two, I would say, uh, periods of time in which he's exercising his ministry. Paul is called to be an evangelist. He is called to be an apostle. And from the very beginning... He is with other believers, and he is preaching the gospel boldly where he is. The account that we have here from verse 20 down through 25 and 26 down through verse 30 are very similar. I think we'll see that as we go through. There's association with the disciples. There is a bold proclamation of the gospel. There is persecution that arises, and then there's a departure from this place of ministry to another in God's providence. We're actually coming to the end of a section, though, as you look at verse 31 in Luke's writing, because in verse 31 he says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace. But it's really Saul's presence that is bringing the absence of peace, certainly before he came to Christ, but even when he was present with the believers, because of his public proclamation, there was a stirring up of what was taking place both in Damascus and also at Jerusalem to the point where he had death threats and conspiracies upon his life. Now, one other thing I would point out is that as you go through this section, if you're uh, studying the book of Acts, and you're trying to follow cross-references and different things and looking at other passages, you find, as you look at Galatians chapter 1 particularly, that what Luke presents here as a very simple movement from Damascus to Jerusalem is actually more complicated. And in addition to being more complicated, there's more time that passes. If you just read this portion of Acts, these few verses, you might expect this takes place in the course of a few months, but we're actually talking about years. And for whatever reason, of course, the Holy Spirit gave uh, and guided Luke. Uh, but if you turn over to Galatians, I just wanted to note that before we move on into the passage, Galatians chapter 1. Paul 
Paul is recounting what happened when he came to Christ. And I'll start in verse 13. He says, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my country, uh, contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Okay, we know he went into Damascus, but according to Saul here, Paul, he went away to Arabia and then came back to Damascus. Luke doesn't record that. I don't believe Luke needed to record that, but uh, Paul does here. Next verse, it says, Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any of the other, apostle, uh, other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, in what I'm writing to you, I assure you before God that I'm not lying. Verse 21, Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, which is where Tarsus is. What, what Paul records in more detail here kind of underlies what Luke is describing back in Acts chapter 9. If you turn back to Acts chapter 9, just drawing attention to that in part because what Luke records, if we compare Scripture with Scripture, we get a, and we're going to look at others as well, we'll get a, a, a little deeper understanding of the, the context of what's taking place both in Damascus, because he wasn't always there, and then also at Jerusalem, which only was, according to Galatians, how many days? He says 15 days. He wasn't there for very long. And then according to Luke, the reason that he left, I think we'll see in Paul's own words that there are more than one reason than is given here. But here we've got Luke's description of Saul's early preaching ministry in Damascus. So whether this is the beginning of the time or later in the time, as I look at verse 20, I would suggest that it's actually immediately that he begins to proclaim Jesus. Uh, even if he's proclaiming him later on, he's still in the context of this passage, you could say that very quickly or early on in his life as a Christian, he's preaching and proclaiming Jesus. And let's not miss what verse 19 says, and that is that he was associating with the disciples. I already mentioned that, but that's not insignificant. As Saul came to Christ, he was not a solo Christian. He associated with them, probably, as we look at the passage, introduced to them by Ananias, who can say, I even had objections to receiving Saul, but the Lord spoke to me, and the Lord spoke to him, and Ananias would have related those details to those disciples there at Damascus. And wouldn't it have been something, if you were a disciple there at Damascus, to know that Saul was coming 
and then a period of time has passed between you know he's coming and then he's arrived, but something has happened and now he wants to come be with us? He wants to meet with us? He wants to spend time with us? And what we've just read is no doubt what they would have had to hear in terms of Paul's testimony, Saul's testimony to them of what happened on the road. And then Ananias, and they're no doubt in wonder as this confession of faith by Saul and corroborating witness by Ananias brings this man who was their enemy now into their presence as a friend and brother. What a change the Lord had made in this man's life just to bring him into that community with the other disciples. And then for him to be the one among all of them, certainly there were others preaching Christ, but immediately, verse 20, he is proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. And it's synagogues plural, which means that there are multiple places where Jews are gathering, and they're meeting together, no doubt, reading the Law and the Prophets. As they're reading the and notice that's different than the disciples, right? This is not just he's going to meet with the disciples when it says synagogues. This is a, an evangelistic effort as he's going to the Jews, and he's proclaiming Jesus, and he's saying that the same Jesus who he had persecuted the followers of before, he, that he's saying in verse 20 at the end of the verse, he is the Son of God. This is bold proclamation, and Luke draws attention to that uh, here and then later on in the passage as he speaks of Saul's bold preaching uh, in Jerusalem as well. I want you to notice the, the, the content of his preaching. In verse 20, it says, immediately he began to proclaim Jesus, so specifically Jesus the Nazarene, the one who has died and risen again, and the message that Saul is giving to these synagogues, again, plural, this is not one event, but multiple times he's going around and proclaiming Jesus, and what is his message? His message is that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. There's an implication in that. The implication that is in part that he is alive. And Saul, of course, knew that. He had seen Christ on the road to Damascus. He knew that he was alive. But beyond his just being alive, he's calling those Jews to recognize his identity as the Son of God. Now, this is the only time in the book of Acts where Christ is called the Son of God. It's not that he's not referred to as the Son anywhere else. In fact, if you turn over to Acts chapter 13 for just a moment. Acts chapter 13, as Saul, now he's being called Paul in the book of Acts, is preaching the gospel, and he's preaching the doctrine of the resurrection. Look at verse 30. I'll start in verse 29. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days, 
He appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so Paul, as he's preaching here, draws attention to Psalm 2, where the title, Son, and in the context, the Son of God, is applied to the Messiah. Turn back, if you would, to Psalm 2. He's trying to explore, in part, why Paul or Saul would go and preach to these synagogues, to these Jews, that Jesus is God's Son. What does that mean to these Jewish listeners as he's preaching to them there at Damascus. Psalm 2, and if you know the teaching of Psalm 2, this is a really large in scope. It encompasses human history to a certain extent. Verse 1, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his... And the word there is Messiah, anointed one. So the kings of the earth, the rulers, take counsel together in rebellion against the Lord, against his Messiah or his anointed one, saying, verse 3, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, if we were to look at the New Testament reference to this passage, Peter, the apostles are referring to that as what happened when Jesus was crucified. That was that worldwide expression of rebellion against God when they crucified Christ, Jesus. But how does God respond to that? Verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. This is God's unstoppable purpose that mankind will be ruled through his son, the Messiah. How do we know he's his son? Look at verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, even the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. And this is an interesting psalm to read through and interpret. I believe what is being said there, because in verse 7 it says, He said to me, you are my son. That has to be God the Father. And the recipient of that has to be God the Son. He says, you are my son. And what does the Son receive? Well, life, verse 7, and as Paul applies it to the resurrection, that's the kind of life he's talking about. But beyond that resurrection, verses 8 and 9, is rule over the nations. Powerful, unstoppable, sovereign rule over the nations. This is what belongs to the Son. This is what belongs to the Messiah. And this is Psalm 2. So the Jews... You could likely say from earliest days as they went to the synagogue would have heard this. That the Messiah is the Son of God. 
What they wouldn't have heard until someone came preaching it, and of course until the incarnation came, is that Jesus is the Son of God. The Son of God is coming. Yes, He is. God's universal king over this world. Yes, He is. But Jesus was new information. And Paul, of course, had met Jesus. And this Jesus, whom Paul is preaching, is the Son of God. Look at Look at the application in verses 10 through 12 of this psalm. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. Literally kiss the Son as a sign of homage, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So he really is a king of kings, the son of God. Paul would say later on in his epistles that he also, of course, is the son of David, but, but in his preaching, even from his earliest days, God had so equipped the apostle Paul with knowledge, and now he's able even to speak in the synagogues and apply the scriptures that he already knew to this person, Jesus, whom he'd met on the road to Damascus. Turn, if you would, back to Acts chapter 9. So he's proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God. And if you were sitting in the synagogue, listening to him teach, and you knew his history, his recent history, this would be amazing, astounding. In fact, it does seem that in verse 21, the ones who are speaking have not come to belief. They have not trusted. They would not yet believe what Saul was preaching because they asked the question, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on? They didn't even want to say his name, this name out of contempt, out of unbelief, but they're also astounded in the fact that here's this man who is going to come here, and, and he's already had this history, and he was actually coming here to, to bind and bring back to the chief priest those who, who he had called on this name. In fact, look at, look at the wording there in verse 21. It says those who uh, hearing him continued to be amazed. They were astounded. They were baffled. They couldn't believe that this same person is saying these things when, here's their question, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed? The word there means to wreak havoc or to cause irreparable damage. He really was trying to harm those. He certainly was participating in Stephen's execution he was calling others to blaspheme. He was imprisoning them. He was trying to destroy and stamp out every vestige of this way, this, this Christ, this Jesus that people were proclaiming. And that was his purpose. We see that even at the beginning of the chapter as he's breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. The rest of the verse says, and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests. He came to imprison people for calling upon this name. Now he's preaching this name. What has happened? 
What could bring such a change in a person like that? You could only say Jesus Christ could. He could change a life in that way. And that's exactly what happened. And praise the Lord that God has that power. Certainly for the early church, it was such a blessing that instead of dealing with Saul in any other way, he just changed his heart and gave him spiritual sight to recognize that Jesus truly was the Messiah. Now, I don't know what change has taken place in your life. I hope there's been a change. Have you turned from your sin and put your trust in Jesus as the only Messiah? Have you believed that he is the Son of God? Have you called upon his name? And if you have, what has changed in your life? Has the power of the gospel, has the Holy Spirit done anything in your life? Can you see the effects of the work of the Spirit of God since you came to Christ? I think Saul here, of course, is an example, an amazing example of the change that Christ can make even for an enemy, even for someone who was his enemy. I had a teacher who used to say, grace never leaves a man where it found him. And what grace in this man's life for him to turn from murderous hatred to now calling others to believe in Jesus as the Son of God, and to what length, uh, to, to, to what effort did he go? Well, look at verse 22. This isn't in any way slowing down. He's teaching and proclaiming in the synagogues. In verse 22, it says, but Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Perhaps it was here, as he did later, where he began to show that the Messiah had to suffer, that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer. You know, later on in the book of Acts, it tells us his method, that he would go in and for three weeks he would teach from the Old Testament, certainly how the Messiah had to suffer, and then he would identify Jesus as the Messiah who had suffered. But whatever the case is, the Lord is giving him strength, and I believe this isn't physical. Someone suggested, although the Spirit is not mentioned, that this is spiritual strength as he's preaching the gospel. In addition to giving him strength, giving him facility as he debates and argues, and he's able to prove very clearly that Jesus is the Messiah, to the point where as Saul eventually leaves this town, he has converts. He has what Luke calls his disciples. We'll come to that in just a little bit, but verse 25 says he has disciples. So yes, he was associating, he was with the disciples, but now he's proclaiming the gospel in these synagogues, and there are people who are believing his message and following him as a teacher because he's preaching the gospel and being very effective in his preaching. Notice in verse 23, what happens after he has preached the gospel, as he has increased in strength and confounded, baffled these Jews. It says, when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. They couldn't find any other way around getting rid of this influence. They couldn't defeat him in debate. 
They couldn't argue against him. He was so convincing in his preaching of the truth. The only way, because they didn't agree with him, is that we've got to kill him. It's really, someone said, the last argument for a desperate cause. You can't, you can't beat him. So, no, it's not join him. It's actually kill him. And that's their attempt. Verse 23, when many days had elapsed, the, Jew, elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. So this is a conspiracy. And in God's providence, this conspiracy becomes known to Saul himself. So he knows there are people who are trying to take his life. This is another portion of this passage that is simply expressed here. But if you were to take a look at 2 Corinthians, there is more going on, both on a an immediate level with the Jews, but they've actually got government official uh, officials involved, and they're watching the gates. It seems they may have even had soldiers at the gates who were involved in watching. Paul says in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11 that the governor, the ethnarch under Eratus, the king, was involved in this attempt to take Saul's life. And in this walled city of Damascus, there would have only been a certain number of gates but sort of like Jericho, remember Jericho where Rahab lived in the wall? There were rooms in the wall and windows in the wall where someone could get out. And what we find in the end of this portion here, this section, is that Saul's disciples, verse 25, took him, and not during the daytime, lest he should be caught, but by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. This is one of the many escapes of Saul or the Apostle Paul for his life. This is one of those times where God is certainly giving Saul the knowledge of what has uh, taken place, the plot and conspiracy against him, and he's also giving him the means to escape, the means to get out and get away. And what a turn of events for him to finally leave Damascus in this way. How was he expecting to leave the city initially? With an entourage of prisoners, probably soldiers along with him. Now the soldiers in the city are seeking him. What was he planning to do? He was planning to go back to Jerusalem, but he wasn't planning to go out this way. So this has turned... Uh, things upside down for Saul, certainly for the Christians there at Damascus. And where would you go if people were trying to seek uh, to kill you? And someone said if he's a coward, he would not have done what he does next. Because look at verse 26. This ministry in Damascus of proclaiming the gospel boldly is followed by a ministry, though it was short, in Jerusalem. The very place where he left with letters to go to Damascus to arrest the disciples of Christ. And even if three years have passed, people don't forget things like what Saul did three years prior. Right? What had Saul done just three years prior? Saul had been involved in the death of Stephen. This was a notable event in the church. It was very public. This was not secretive at all. Everyone knew what had happened to Stephen. There was great lamentation over his death, according to Acts chapter 8. So he comes to Jerusalem, and his first desire is, verse 26, he's trying to associate with the disciples. 
He's trying to join them or become part of them is how that word could be translated. And what would you do if this man who had left the city in the way and with the history that he had, but he goes away and comes back and all the memory that you have of him is he was the guy who was there with all the coats when Stephen was being executed. He was receiving the coats of the witnesses who were taking off their cloaks so that they could hold stones and throw them at Stephen and kill him. And he was in agreement with them. What would you do if someone who had publicly and vehemently persecuted your church and had even been a part of executing one of your members wanted suddenly to become a part of your church? And it's very logical what happens here. They're afraid of him. And they don't believe him. Verse 26 says, they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. So this was widespread fear of this man based upon his history. There certainly would be some within that Jerusalem church who had had either themselves been imprisoned or maybe had family members in prison, certainly the family of Stephen. Do we want this man to become a part? In, in fact, if this is a ploy, it's not a very good one. He's coming right to us and he wants to get in with us. And he's making up this story, they might have thought. Now, they're not apparently privy to all the circumstances at Damascus. Um, he did not come, one author said, with a letter of commendation where Ananias, perhaps, and the disciples there at Damascus could have written a letter. That'd be an interesting letter to write. But he didn't come with that. He had to escape, leave the city quickly, let down in a basket, comes to Jerusalem, doesn't have, you might say, the, the, uh, those, those things that would contribute to him being an authentic disciple, testified to by the others. He just comes to the city. He wants to join the disciples. And what does he have to convince them? His word. But praise the Lord, it wasn't after this initial rejection, it wasn't that he just had to go away. There was one who had enough courage to listen to him and to truly consider whether Christ had done something in his life and changed him. And of course, this is Barnabas. It would take something to have the courage like Barnabas had. Here, look at verse 27. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. Now, we don't have enough to know if there was any other testimony beyond Saul to Barnabas? In other words, if there's someone else who could corroborate Saul's words, so that when Saul tells Barnabas, someone else like Ananias is saying, yes, that happened, or one of the other people said, yes, that happened. And so he's, he's really having to go based on Saul's testimony. And 
not only the testimony of what took place on the road, that's a part of it. Verse 27 says, describe to them how he had seen the Lord on the road. And then the next statement, and that he, capital H, had talked to him. So what is Saul's testimony that Barnabas is receiving? That Jesus actually met Saul, and Jesus talked to Saul. Saul had seen Jesus. Now that would be something for them to consider. And as Barnabas had heard that story initially and then brought him to the apostles, there's, you compare this passage to Galatians, it seems that when Luke says he brought him the apostles, that these are not all the apostles, but a representative of the apostles, Peter being one, and then James, the Lord's brother, who we don't typically call an apostle, but he is in the same scene here in Jerusalem, and he's leading, and I believe he is called an apostle. But Barnabas takes hold of him, brings him to at least Peter and James, because Paul says he met James later on, and then he's describing this. He's describing what has taken place. Now, this is one of those times where you, you just, you, you kind of wish you were in the room. You wish you could say, what, what was the exact dialogue? And I would suggest if you study the book of Acts, you can get more of a picture of the kinds of things that, that Saul or Paul relates because he actually does relate them. He just doesn't do it all at one time. It's like when you tell a story multiple times and people are listening to the story and then they hear the story and they say, well, I didn't remember that part of the story. Yeah, I may have never told you that part, but that was part of the picture too. Oh, and it's, it's something that fills things out. Well, just, just listen to what I would say is a synthesis of Saul's testimony. And I, I took some time some years ago to do a, a harmony of Saul's conversion to kind of get, to try to figure out all the things that Saul says about what happened that day on the road and put it together. Because he talks about it in Galatians. He talks about it in Acts 26. He talks about it in Acts 22. And, he talk, and Luke talks about it in, in Acts chapter 9. So I'm just going to read to you. These are scripture passages based upon what you see in each of those. And just listen, because this is Saul's story. This is what happened on the road to Damascus. As I journeyed, I came near Damascus about noon, and suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me and the ones who journeyed with me, greater than the brightness of the sun. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I've appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of these things which you have seen and of those things in which I will appear to you delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send you to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. And I trembling and astonished said, Lord, what would you have me to do? And the Lord said to me, arise and go into the city and it shall be told you what you must do. 
And the men who journeyed with me stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And I arose from the earth, and when my eyes were opened, I saw no man because of the glory of that light. But they led me by the hand and brought me into Damascus. And if you're Peter, and if you're Barnabas, Christ is alive. This would be very much in keeping with the will of Christ to make the gospel. What did we read this morning? Make disciples of all the nations. Yes, the Gentiles need to hear. This is completely consistent with the will of Christ. And so there was enough of a judgment during this time. This would have been a powerful argument if he related all of that for Peter to accept him, certainly for Barnabas to accept him first. And based upon Barnabas and Peter accepting Saul, then the people with fear and trepidation reaching out to shake the hand of Saul and welcoming him into their company. The same city where he has been involved in putting to death Stephen, a notable of their number. This is the work of God. Only God can do something like that. In fact, it gets better. Keep on reading. Look at verse 28. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. So he had been preaching in Damascus. Now he's preaching in Jerusalem. He's accepted by the believers and as he's preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, guess who he gets into an argument with? Verse 29, and he was talking and arguing with Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. Now, who was it just a few chapters ago was having a problem with these synagogues of Hellenistic Jews? Who was it? It was Stephen. Stephen is now replaced by one of the people who had him put to death. Do you see that? Stephen, look back at Acts chapter 6 for a moment. Yes, hallelujah. Verse 8. Acts chapter 6, Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people, but some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And since they couldn't stop him, and so they couldn't deal with him, what did they have to do? They had to try to put him to death, and indeed they did. And Saul was among them. <laughs> Three years later, the Lord brings back one of those people who had killed Stephen and puts him in Stephen's place. Do you see what God is doing? This is our God. And he's worthy of worship, and he is building his church. And you can kill one of his 
you can kill one of his choice servants. But I think based on the passage, the last few chapters here, you better be careful. You might actually take the place of that one that you killed. And, and the think about it, the persecution that he stirred up, he actually becomes the recipient of. Right? I mean, Saul was persecuting others, and now he becomes one who's persecuted. Look back at Acts chapter 9. They are attempting to put him to death. Verse 30, very similar to what happened in Damascus, just Saul got out a different way. It says, when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So they took him to the coast, as I understand it, and then they sent him back up to where he was from. In Tarsus, when, when Paul tells that story, he said, I went into the regions, and he mentions two regions, Cilicia and another region. And why does he say the regions rather than the place? Some suggest that he's actually on a mission to go tell those synagogues that Jesus is the Messiah. Because what had, what, had, what had transformed this man's life was a vision, a reality, the truth that Christ is alive, that he is the Son of God, and I cannot keep silent about that. I can't keep silent about it. In fact, what's the end of that? If someone believes that message, it's salvation. Someone said, John Chrysostom, in a sermon on this passage hundreds and hundreds of years ago, said, nothing is more frigid than a Christian who cares not for the salvation of others. And this man certainly did. You, you'd have to say, based on Christian history, the history of the New Testament, who has invested more in terms of sowing of seed? We know it's God's work through him, but in terms of sowing the seed and writing uh, the, the the books that he wrote in the New Testament, who has done more um, in terms of a human instrument besides the Lord Jesus for the salvation of others? God changed this man. And we serve the same God. It's not that he can't save and change people today. I wonder if it's that we're not preaching the gospel and I wonder if it's that we sometimes are just not concerned for the salvation of others. And even those hard cases, even those people who we would look at and say, that there's no hope for that person. We have to remember this is recorded in Scripture for us to have hope and encouragement that God can save any person. John Marshall, in a little book about a man who went into the ministry without even having truly believed. He said that he had published this book in part to show that God can save someone who has just lived wickedly, and even in the name of Christ, but then Christ saved him. He said, we're often prone to write people off as beyond hope of salvation. Saul of Tarsus, before his conversion, was held in the grip of false doctrine, a slave of sin, and a vicious persecutor of God's people, yet God saved him. We profess salvation is by grace, and so it is, but this means that the most depraved of sinners may be saved. 
Even, he says, professed ministers of the gospel have entered the ministry upon false grounds and hold, hold to false teaching, and are negligent of their duty may be saved by grace. And you know how that man, whose name was Thomas Scott, was saved? He started to interact with John Newton. John Newton was willing to write to him and answer his questions. And even though Thomas Scott was trying to provoke John Newton to controversy, John Newton was being gracious and preached the gospel to him. And over time, this man who had entered into the ministry without knowing Christ came to Christ. God's still saving people. Save the Apostle Paul. If you look at the very end of this passage, look at verse 31 in Acts chapter 9. Just briefly, what happens after Saul goes to Tarsus? Verse 31, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up. And going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. I think this is interesting because it's a conclusion. Luke says, so. The so follows this period of turbulence, and you would say unrest, because of Saul prior to his coming to Christ and even after his coming to Christ because of his preaching the gospel. Saul's gone. He's preaching the gospel elsewhere, surely likely stirring up other things as he's preaching Jesus as the Son of God in other synagogues. But here's the church, and notice what he says, the church singular throughout all these three regions, Judea, Galilee, Samaria. These are regions, and you remember what happened when people wanted to pass through? They'd either go quickly through or around Samaria, so they wouldn't have to go through. But what God has done in the building of his church is he's actually joined Judea, Samaria, and could I say Galilee of the Gentiles? What are we seeing? Christ is building his church. He is not only building his church, he's doing amazing things while it's all moving. He's taking a man who was a persecutor and making him a preacher, putting him back in the place where Stephen was, at least for a time. And that's building up the church. And then the church is, this is a beautiful statement, going on in the fear of the Lord, an awe, reverence for God. And in the comfort, the, the Holy Spirit has come alongside and comforting and helping and building up as well. And there's multiplication. There are more and more disciples that are coming to Christ as a result of what God is doing. This is a beautiful thing. It's Christ building his church, and we're getting to see the inner workings of what he's doing. Praise the Lord. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we bow before you. We recognize your grace and your power to save sinners. Sometimes, Lord, we just think there are things impossible for you. And we thank you for your word, which says that nothing is impossible with God. This man who was your enemy and the enemy of your people, you transformed into a bold proclaimer 
of the good news of the gospel. And we pray that we might rejoice in your grace, but also that we would have an expectation of your grace. That we would not think of people in terms of the impossibility of their being saved, even those around us, Lord, who we may have prayed for for a long time and have earnestly sought you. Help us to not give up seeking you. Help us to not give up preaching the good news. Give us grace, Lord, that we might endure in our faith and trust you and help us to keep on sowing the seed as well. And we pray, Lord, that you'd build your church, build it here, accomplish your purpose through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand together with me. Let's sing in closing in our hymns of prayer. Hymn number 11, hymns of prayer, hymn number 11. Sing together in closing today. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's our desire, Lord, that they would confess now by faith and not when forced in judgment. For there, if they never have bowed the knee to Christ, it will be too late for their soul. We pray, Lord, even as we 
go forth today, that we would believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, that we would live out in our lives his lordship, that we would submit, Lord, to your word. I do pray, Lord, if there's someone here today who has not yet bowed the knee, someone who has not turned in their heart from their sin and trusted in Christ alone for salvation, Lord, I pray that today might be the day. Lord, we know that you're able to save and powerful to save. We see it and this man who said that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, I'm, uh, among whom I am chief. So, Lord, if you save the chief of sinners, certainly others, though we may be very sinful, we know the blood of Jesus Christ is able to cleanse. We know that the grace of God is great enough to save wretched, wicked sinners. We pray that you would do your saving work among those who have not yet come to know you. For us who have, Lord, we pray that we might praise you and give you thanks, that we might share that good news of the gospel with others. Even today, Lord, a wonderful way to end the year to share the good news with someone who needs to hear it. Give us grace. Thank you, Lord, again for this year. All the times we fellowship together. And as we gather again, in the new year, we pray that we rejoice and serve you all the more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May the Lord bless you.